Paul Sibson is a humanistic and integrative psychotherapist now working as a trainer for the Coherence Psychology Institute. He contributed to the book Unlocking the Emotional Brain, a groundbreaking publication on memory reconsolidation and coherence therapy. Today's discussion covers the discovery of memory reconsolidation and how this shaped the development of coherence therapy, formerly known as depth-orientated brief therapy. Paul explains the three stages of coherence therapy, discovery, integration and transformation, and what these look like in therapy. If you want to find out more, please follow the link in the description to read the case study Paul references during our talk, as well as an article on memory reconsolidation authored by its founders. Welcome back to the Therapy Explained podcast. Today I'm joined by Paul Sibson, a humanistic and integrative psychotherapist now working as a trainer for the Coherence Psychology Institute. Hi Paul, thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here, James. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, Paul. We're here today to talk about coherence therapy. Would you mind starting off by explaining what this is? So I suppose to, to place it in its kind of paradigm, I suppose it's a phenomenological approach, uh, very experiential. Uh, and if I give a little bit of the background, that might be really helpful, actually. So the founders of coherence therapy, what was originally called depth or brief therapy, a, a guy called Bruce Ecker and Laurel Hulley, their partners in life and, and in work. And Bruce was a research physicist before he got into the world of therapy. Uh, and what he then did is he studied therapy sessions where real profound transformational change moments happened and then actually reverse engineered his formation of a model, which originally was called depth oriented brief therapy. So he literally just looked at thousands of clinical sessions, took the pieces where real deep change happened and then reverse engineered what the processes had been that led up to those change moments. So from that, he then formed the whole model of depth-oriented brief therapy, which I think in 2007 was renamed as coherence therapy to further emphasize the actual core principle of emotional coherence, which is that symptoms are not irrational, not maladaptive. They're actually entirely coherent given the individual's emotional learnings. So that said, so the actual frame of coherence therapy, and as it plays out, it's a very nonlinear process. The model breaks down into basically three discrete phases of work, discovery, integration, and transformation. Uh, and I can unpack that further, but that, that's, that's the real ground, that the model itself came out of looking at phenomenological change moments in real therapy sessions and was reverse engineered. And the central principle of coherence is that, as I said, symptoms aren't irrational, aren't maladaptive. It's a totally non-pathologizing frame. And once the emotional truths that are driving symptom production are discovered, they make complete coherent emotional sense, given the individual's personal emotional learnings. So hence the name coherence therapy, because it makes sense as to why this, as to why you feel the way you do. So it makes sense to you. Yes, I mean, initially it doesn't. People come in with their symptoms and they say, I just want to get rid of this. And that can feed into what's really dominated the field, which is a kind of counteractive reflex to try to push symptoms away or counteract them. And that's a certain type of change process. Uh, but actually in coherence therapy... So that might, be, <clears throat> that might be like third wave therapies like CBT, DBT, ACT, mindfulness. So 
you're kind of trying to work with the symptoms and maybe push them away in one sense, but yeah, you're working at the tail end of things. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a good way of saying it. Whereas in coherence therapy and many, many other therapies, it's actually the real core of the process is working from the symptom into the actual emotional truths that are driving it through a process in coherence therapy we call discovery and integration, the first two phases. And that's the therapist using everything they've got to experientially help the client to bump into the emotional truths that are initially unconscious about that are implicit and bring those into explicit awareness. So there's this process of the symptom moving from something that seems totally irrational to something that actually has a profound agency behind it and is serving a very deep, coherent purpose for the individual. So um, you're trying to get to the root of the problem and that these symptoms are just symptomatic of that. And you're trying to f find out, okay, what is the, the root of that? What is it that, and I think of internal family systems, what, how does this function? How is it trying to keep you safe? And that these symptoms are just ways to keep you safe and you're trying to swim back up the river to the source. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah, swim back up the river to the source, exactly. And that source is initially unconscious to the client, but through, and this is a huge part of the work, and it's a very non-linear process, the discovery and the integration, and we get the transformation ultimately. But that's where the therapist, we really don't know what's driving symptom production, but we bring lots of different experiential ways of working. And that could be really almost any experiential way of working, although in coherence, we have a basic set of experiential techniques to help the client actually experientially start to consciously bump into and attend the emotional truths driving the symptom that are initially unconscious. So the movement, just like in IFS, is from what was implicit to explicit conscious awareness. And that's the groundwork for really transforming the source, the real roots of symptom production. I wonder, would that be a good place to go next is, well, when you have the symptoms, what is that experiential next step? Okay, good. <clears throat> so when you say when you have the symptoms, you mean? Yeah, so let's say you, you, you have an understanding of the symptoms that someone um, is experienced. They say, well, these are the kind of thoughts I have, or these are situations I find difficult. You have an idea of the problem that they're looking to work on. So that seems to be like the kind of the, the, some of the first things that you need. They're the breadcrumbs. Where do you go from when you have that? Yeah, yeah. I love that as well, the idea of the breadcrumbs and start the trail and follow it, which is exactly how the work proceeds. Uh, and it proceeds in the sense that, so what do we know from the start? Okay, we get very experientially clear about the symptom production. What is the experiential, first-person experience of the symptom? Thoughts, feelings, behaviours. And then because of the way symptoms are structured and the way they come out of the underlying emotional truths that drive them, we need to get experientially very clear on the symptom because that's exactly the kind of gateway through experiential techniques. And this is not just a metaphor, this is literally neurologically true, into the underlying emotional, what we call positions in coherence, that we pro-symptom positions, because they're positions in the psyche, implicit, unconscious, that are pro-having the symptom, but you could also call them parts, uh, subpersonalities, ego states, complexes, schemas. So the symptom and getting very clear of its experiential, uh, or just what it is as an experience, is literally the gateway through experiential techniques into the underlying material that makes the symptom coherently emotionally necessary to have. 
And I, I kind of like, um, I do like the idea of parts and I think subpersonalities is a great way of looking at it because a personality is a complex set of, you know, how do I feel when I'm like this? What kind of thoughts do I have? What do I do? And that's what you're trying to get an idea of. What is that cluster of symptoms, a.k.a. a part, maybe even a subpersonality? And that's the part that you're looking to work with. That's the, the gateway in. Those symptoms are a gateway into that part. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And the symptoms are conscious at the outset of therapy. That's why clients turn up. But the actual underlying emotional truths, as we call them, in coherence therapy that are driving the symptom are totally unconscious. So, so the, the symptoms are mystery to the conscious personality of the client. I'm just depressed or I'm just anxious. I hate it. I don't know. I wish I wasn't. But over the work of discovery and integration in coherence therapy, it starts to become apparent that no, the symptom isn't, again, irrational, maladaptive. It makes complete emotional sense to at least one part, one position, one ego state, one subpersonality in, in the psyche. Mm. Now, let's say if someone comes in and they've got, you know, it's, I mean, these things are never simple, but they're very specific about the part that they want to work on. But what if someone's got like a whole host of parts? How do you, I'm not sure, prioritize or what do you do with that? Yeah, no, great question. And just in case this process of discovery, integration, transmission sounds linear anyway, the work turns up in a very non-linear way, although it's always deeply experiential, phenomenological, ideally. And just like an IFS, although it's not emphasizing coherent therapy, parts are seen as existing in an ecology of parts. Uh, so there, there are multiple parts that interact as a, as a, a gestalt, as, a, as an overall system, uh, just to put that in place. So yeah, I mean, that, that's very routinely the case, what we call the pro-symptom positions. There are multiple pro-symptom positions. Uh, so we work, and this is where the non-linearity really comes in, we're trying to do some very basic things session by session by session to bring each position that drives the symptom more and more into implicit, into explicit, sorry, conscious awareness as we discover the different parts. Sometimes it's one part, but often it is. It's multiple parts driving sometimes multiple symptoms, but we can only work with, you know, one part at a time. And I suppose it's doing that as efficiently and effectively as possible. And the work gets really complex over time and it takes time. But there's always a sense of going in the right direction and finding more and more deep coherence. That is the goal of coherence therapy, is it to try and help to bring into conscious awareness what is at the root of these symptoms? Yeah, it's not the ultimate goal, uh, but it's a big kind of marker along the way to the ultimate goal. So, and this is where we might get into memory reconsolidation. So, yeah, the first goal is the symptom identification, and that can move around, but we want to get experientially clear. It can move around session to session. Uh, And then it's the discovery and integration phases in coherence therapy, which is bringing these initially implicit unconscious parts, positions into conscious awareness and integrating them. So we have specific ways of integrating them so they remain and get more and more routinely conscious to the person rather than dissociate and split back off into the unconscious, into the implicit. And then once discovery and integration are complete, uh, kind of quote marks there, as far as they are, but there's a real felt sense when we've got enough of the, the implicit material, explicit, then we move to what's called the transformational phase, which is how do these parts get truly transformed or depotentiated, uh, and that, that is the transformation phase in coherence therapy. 
And when I say depotentiate or transformed, I mean what's now being coined actually is, is, is a kind of functional erasure. You know, so they really cannot be reactivated mm. in that sense. Could you maybe give me an example? If we go through the discovery and integration parts of that first, uh, Paul, could you give me like an example of what that would look like in reality, maybe for you know, a person, maybe someone that you've worked with? So a, a good, very clear example is a woman I worked with over eight, eight sessions. It was over 11 weeks, and then I did a follow-up called uh, pseudonym is Jill. And this is written up, so if people want to check this out later, they, they certainly can. So Jill came, and her symptom was she had a fiancé, and they'd been living with her mother, uh, and they actually wanted to move out. So, But actually, Jill found every time she started to make that move and make it really concrete, moving out to live with her fiancé, she was in her early 30s, that she despite her really best efforts, just this growing anxiety built up in her. And she kind of hit a wall of anxiety uh, to the point that she just had to stop the plan to move out. And then she'd kind of give that up for a while and that the anxiety would recede. And this has got to the point where when she presented, when she came in first contact with her, she was on antidepressants and it really did seem like it was just starting to really erode away the relationship with the fiancé. The mother wanted them to move out. The fiance wanted to move out. Jill wanted to move out, or Jill's conscious personality wanted to move out. But then she just kept hitting this wall. Uh, so long story short, what I know then as a practitioner is, okay, taking the, the not being able to move out and the heightened anxiety as a symptom, this will be emotionally coherent in at least one position, one pro-symptom position, one part, one ego state, change the language there. So the work was to discover that. So over the eight sessions, uh, we used various experiential techniques, but in, in a basic kind of summary form, one of the most effective techniques is often symptom deprivation. We call it incoherence therapy. And because the symptoms necessary to have, at least to one part of the self, one position in the self, then when you deprive the person of the symptom, experientially, you can do this in many, many different ways, it's not like things then feel great, although that's what the person says they want to be free of. It's that actually deeper emotional truths that make the symptom coherently necessary come up. So we use this symptom deprivation experiential technique in, in different ways. And what started to come through for Jill was actually she'd grown up. Her mom had been married to a guy who was quite a drinker and there'd been real violence, domestic abuse. And as a young girl, Jill had often been the one who, who kind of got in the middle and she could kind of calm the father in a way when it was at its worst that, that I think she feared if she didn't, it would really end up in a man being killed. So this material started to come into consciousness. And to summarize, what we found was just a very, very powerful position that essentially had the schema uh, if I move out from the house, leave mum alone, she'll die. So I can't, I can't move out. Well, the last actual violence was something like 15 years ago. The father was actually dead now. And, and Jill's mom was with a new guy and things were really good. So, so as this position came through from the implicit to the explicit and was integrated, and like I say, we use integration techniques one of them is actually putting together a card that describes the discovered material for the client to take away between sessions. 
this position, to Jill's surprise, became more and more filled out. She got more memories of actually events of violence with, with, with the father. And she found herself ultimately sitting in, in full consciousness, what we call position work in, in coherence therapy, of this part of her that, to summarize, basically held the worldview that if I leave mom's side, she's going to die. So I've got to stay in proximity to mom and that's the only way I can keep her safe, which mapped exactly to what had been her emotional truth, at least at her experiential level, as that child that got between mum and dad. And that set up the conditions for the subsequent phase we call transformation, where we basically drive the reconsolidation process. Uh, and that works in this way. So Jill was now consciously fully experiencing this position, this schema, this part, and it came into what we call a mismatch or a prediction error, which is what drives reconsolidation in this way. The mom's life was now, she was with a really nice guy. She wanted Jill to move out. And actually, like I said, there hadn't been any domestic violence for 15 years. That was kind of all over and the father was actually dead. So what we had here is what we call an experiential mismatch. This position in Jill, you could say was still stuck in that time when she was that little girl having to get in between mum and dad to keep mum alive. That was the sense-making, the meaning-making she constructed at the time and, and had internalised as this part. But that now came into contact with the here and now reality. And there was this profound moment where Jill, with her integration task, and we set this up, you can cue this, walked into the room where mum and her new partner were, consciously in this position, that if I leave the house and move out, mum's going to die. Well, actually, mum was sitting there in full good health with this actually really nice guy she'd met, this good bloke where there was no violence. And, and it's that mismatch experience that actually drives the reconsolidation, that drives real transformation. And Jill came back after and reported that, and we'd set this up, that specific experience, because this is all experientially driven, had, had driven the reconsolidation of the part. And it now seemed kind of silly to her why she would have to stay in proximity to mom to keep mom alive. That's a great exa example, Paul. And it makes me think about internal family systems and the unburdening of a part. So yes. that part yes. that's held on to that fear. And as far as I understand, then, yeah, with internal family systems, you're trying to communicate with that part to let them know that we're not a child anymore. We're older now. Things are different. So there seems to be a real similarity between that and the transformation, transformation stage of uh, coherence therapy. I just wanted to go back just a little bit. Great. I just was curious about the symptoms deprivation because um, I can I get really, get a, really get a sense of integration and transformation, but just to discovery because I find sometimes in my own work, sometimes it can be hard to find to get to the bottom of it. Like in EMDR, you can use something like a float back or an ego state bridge. Um, so I'm interested if you could just explain a little bit more about what you mean by symptom deprivation and how that helped uncover the root of this anxiety. Yeah, great. So there are many, many, and I think experiential depth and experiential traction are kind of absolutely key for experiential techniques to have optimal kind of efficacy. And I just want to make super clear as well that this whole process is experiential driven. As far as possible, you do no interpreting you do no kind of overlaying on it. They find their emotional truths by bumping into them and they just come through in their first person experience to the client's conscious personality surprise. Uh, so that's the ideal. 
Yeah, and if I could just pause you there, um, Paul, just to kind of clarify for any listeners that are like, what does he mean by experiential? How is that different to normal? I guess what I my understanding would be, let, let's say in like maybe, I don't know, like a CBT or a counselling session, you might be talking about things like in a, it's very cognitive based. The majority of what you're experiencing is your thoughts and rationalising things versus something that could be experiential exposure therapy, I guess, is a form of experiential therapy, somatic experiencing, EMDR, IFS, where it's you're kind of feeling everything in your body as well. I mean, there's an element of that. It's recommended in CBT when you're working with thoughts. You want to have hot thoughts. You want to activate thoughts that are kind of or beliefs that are loaded. But I guess so. when we talk about experiential, it's you're really feeling something. You're kind of working through something rather than just the top six inches. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It is, uh, you know, I think of all the sensory modalities that are engaged, you know, it's, it's very sensorily deep, you know, there's, there's thoughts, feelings, affect, you know, the Gendlin's kind of idea of the felt sense. It's very embodied. It's utterly non-abstract. And ideally, the person is really immersed in the here and now in the experience. So, so you really want that as far as we can do that, that, that experiential depth. And, and there's, there's, basically infinite amounts of ways of guiding deep experiential work there's so many different modalities or experiential modalities but yeah just to reiterate what you said but it's a real full-bodied deep experience it's not at all kind of top heavy in terms of cognitive or, or meta or abstract in any way you want the person really in the material as far as they can be yeah and um, so just go back to the symptom mm. deprivation just to give us an idea of i'm not sure that technique or that experience or yeah could, could you talk us through that mm. or just give us a little bit more information about what you mean by that yeah good so hopefully that'll illustrate just the part we're talking about about the sensory depth so with jill if i, if I just said to her okay so what do you think it would be like to just leave home and, and move out and be with your fiance and doing that at a cognitive level she would have said oh that would be great that's what i want that's what i'm here for yeah great but actually, and you can do this in many, many different ways, but the deep structure of the symptom deprivation is because the symptom is coherently necessary, when you deprive the client of it, actually they bump into a further suffering they didn't know was there. So with Jill, and, and this we did this in a number of different ways, but there was one particular kind of prolonged symptom deprivation. I was getting more and more specific about what do I need to deprive her of? And actually what it was, it was, a quite detailed sensory experience of, you know, packing the bags, you know, her stuff with her fiance, and you do this quite slow. You're really wanting to kind of drop the tone. So the person's coming at their body, getting more experiential traction, really in the experience. And it was about, I really emphasized the moving away from man. So this movement out of proximity, and then you can kind of crank it up a little bit. You know, it's so, okay, you found somewhere else to live. You're imagining, and this can take minutes, you know, moving out and really feeling yourself, you know, you're leaving home now permanently, you know, so you can actually emphasize words. So you look and actually uh, you're, you're kind of going to, to live in this different place. And I, I'd mentioned where the place might be. And, you know, this, this sense of you'd be living apart from mom. And then, and you guide this very sense that you're moving in, you're starting to really settle in, in this place away from mom. And you can just keep, you know, emphasizing, feeling in until there's a sense of that would be great, 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 great. Ah, hang on. And that's what you're on to. What's the hang on? What's the little flicker of what we call pro-symptom material that comes up? And for Jill, it was this sense of, oh, there's something really uncomfortable about that. Okay, so let's, we call it pitch a tent. Stay right there. Tell me more about this discomfort. 
that comes. And that's what started to open up and Jill started to get further explicit memories and, and this position slowly emerged. I see these things as almost 3D objects that start to come into consciousness. And the position was, just as I described, this part of herself she was now associating to and experiencing, which was, you could say, it was that little girl part that really had this set of, of rules, basically, that if I leave mom's side, she's going to die. Mm, that makes a lot of sense, Paul. And um, it makes me again think about internal family systems. Mm. It's like a protector part comes up. So you face, you expose them to whatever that threat might be. And then that protector part is going to come up. And that protector part, if we think of it being part of a, a system or a family, is going to be linked to the exile part, mm. you know, that, that, that child, and there you go. So, no, that's, that's, that's um, really interesting. Yeah, it makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in a loose way, the work with kind of protectors or, or managers and firefighters, is, I'm not no expert in IFS, yeah, it could very loosely be mapped to the discovery phase of, of how can we actually ultimately discover and get access consciously to the exile part and how do we then bring that into conscious awareness the integration phase and in so there's a it's not a one-to-one -one mapping but i think the deep structure is very non-counteractive the symptom will make really deep sense given the person's emotional world and then how do we actually move it from implicit and split off into explicit conscious awareness where it can be an ifs unburdened so just to kind of summarize the those three parts it's the discovery trying to find out what the parts are and integration is trying to look at the that mismatch. Well, what do we know now versus what we knew then? No, the integration is really we kind of find the parts, the discovery, and then integration can be actually verbally stating the discovered material to make it conscious. I think of this wiring in from what was subcortical and implicit in a conscious, explicit, routine, daily awareness. And, and that's for the cards between sessions when clients take away the discovered material on a card to read while looking to get this material really reassociated to very very conscious and that sets up the, the the real groundwork in place for what then can be done in terms of true transformation driven by memory reconsolidation and maybe on that point if we spend a little bit more time talking about memory reconsolidation because i guess that would be the cornerstone of coherence therapy would that be right in saying well this is just the coolest thing i mean this still yeah, I'm not being hyperbolic, this still amazes me. I mean, going back to what I said at the start about how depth-oriented brief therapy and coherence therapy came into being, it's a great story, actually. You know, this was from Bruce and Laurel looking at phenomenological change moments and then reverse engineering uh, to, to create depth-oriented brief therapy that became coherence therapy. So that was all first-person phenomenological work. But then Bruce, research physicist, remember, you know, he was pouring through the hard objective scientific literature for a neural mechanism, you know, just inferring there must be some process of, of, of neural plasticity that can account for what I'm seeing in the first person phenomenology of clients change moments, transformational change moments. And then there's actually a little YouTube, I think, of, of Bruce telling the story. He'd been pouring through articles for a long time about hard science around memory. And in 2005, he was away with Laurel at a motel and actually still pouring over the data, research physicist, and actually what started to come through, which was previously thought to be truly impossible in the field. Subcortical members were thought being dealt, but Bruce was finding coming through from hard science 
what we now call what was known as mem it is known as memory reconsolidation that there is a form of neuroplasticity that could account for the the deep transformational change changes he was seeing in clinical practice and then there's this beautiful convergence of first person change with now third person hard and this is just two and two fact that we know about actually the conditions that drive memory reconsolidation and the two just kind of beautifully married from the phenomenological change moments being witnessed in clinical therapy and the actual empirical conditions that 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 drive memory reconsolidation so it's this beautiful conversion of first person and third person you know subjective and objective the memory reconsolidation my understanding of it is it's like um those memories are almost like frozen in time and what you're looking to do when you go back to them is they become defrosted they become <laughs> like that that they become more malleable if we're thinking of them being plastic yeah yeah and there's real the devil is in the detail here uh so actually just reactive so if jill had just found this memory or this part that had this belief if i leave mom's side she's going to die so i must i must stay in proximity to her that can become conscious and not be transformed at all the absolute and th there was a lot of misunderstanding in the early writings about reconsolidation around this what actually the really the core of the core what drives reconsolidation is the mismatch experience the prediction error so the mental model jill had of if I leave mum's side, she's going to die. I've got to stay in proximity. Literally, and this is where conscious awareness can be is so crucial. It comes into contact with the here and now, experiential knowing of her mum's situation with a good guy, very physically well, really safe. The past is truly over, but initially this part doesn't know that, and it's actually this collision. It's a, it's a, they're kind of mutually contradictory. It's an experiential disconfirmation. That's it's the it's the mismatch that actually launches reconsolidation. So you can see that in real time. And Jill walks into the room, opens the door. There's Mum and a new partner, and she's consciously in the part of herself that says, "If I leave Mum's side, she's going to die." Well, there's just no way that can stand up to the here and now reality of Mum's situation. And it, it's exactly that mismatch which launches reconsolidation. But just making that part conscious wouldn't do it. It can come into consciousness and then just go back into unconsciousness again and again and again. It needs the mismatch experience. And we, we, we consciously work to construct that experience in the transformational phase of coherence therapy. We spoke a little bit before we started recording about, I was mentioning um, imagery rescripting, which would mm. be um, maybe the only technique I can think of in CBT that may use something similar. So with imagery rescripting, if you were to think of a memory that seemed to be at the root of a problem, like a you know, distressing experience, you would look to uh, relive the memory uh, in three phases. So first from the perspective of you as a child, then you'd relive it as your adult self going back, meeting the needs of the, the child at the mm. time. And then the third time you do it from the perspective of the child witnessing your adult self helping and any needs any further needs being met being met does that sound like it would meet the conditions for memory reconsolidation yeah, yeah. i mean the, the the second and third step and again this is and i can't say this enough memory consolidation doesn't belong to coherence therapy 
it's actually trans-theoretical. It's the brain's inbuilt kind of process of experiential driven change. So no modality owns it. So it can really be a profoundly deep organizing principle in regard to integration across experiential modalities. So the way I'm listening now through the lens of reconsolidation, I mean, you describe that second phase. So the child knowing is, is coming into contact with all of these other adult knowings that are now in the person's psyche. But they can remain just compartmentalized. They never come into contact because the child knowing is unconscious. It's implicit. They never collide. They never bump into each other. But you guide something like that process, imagery rescripting, and, and you can literally hear, I can feel the knowings coming into contact at that contact boundary. So the adult has a different set of knowings to the child, if we say it as simply as that, but they say split off and dissociate from each other. But you guide a process like imagery rescripting, and you can see where they start to come into contact, potentially experientially. And that's exactly the conditions that, that drive the reconsolidation process. So you can start to see interventions through this frame and, and kind of tweak them or just keep them as they are or discard them altogether based on on this core process of, of what's now called the empirically confirmed process of erasure. It, it sounds like, well, as we've said, that memory reconciliation is uh, part of a number of therapies. What might set coherence therapy apart or where might it differ? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, going back to the way it came into being by this reverse engineering of change moments and, and then the construction of the, of the model just through this reverse engineering process. So coherence therapy kind of explicitly actually maps to the stages required for reconsolidation just because of the way it was brought into being. It was almost reverse engineered to do exactly that, although the actual hard reconsolidation data wasn't in at that point. Uh, so in that, step, in that sense, the steps just map very closely to the experiential steps that drive reconsolidation. And I can't say that strongly enough. It's an experiential process. This is not a protocol. You can't do this uh, in any kind of cookie-cutter way. It's absolutely first-person phenomenological driven by the client's experience of these mismatch uh, experiences. So coherence therapy maps the steps. Uh, I won't go into the details of the therapy reconsolidation process. That's A, B, C, 1, 2, 3, V. And, but it basically maps the steps explicitly because of how it was how it was formed. But the steps themselves, and in the book Unlocking the Emotional Brain, the steps of reconsolidation are found also in uh, EMDR, interpersonal neurobiology, uh, emotional focus therapy, uh, and there's one further one, EMDR, interpersonal neurobiology, EFT, uh, can't remember the, the fourth one, that'll come back to me. But subsequent to that, I think there's now maybe seven or eight further therapies that have been actually looked at. And you can see, although their steps don't explicitly map reconsolidation, that they're generating reconsolidation because they're deeply experiential transformational therapies. But coherence therapy seems to me maybe truest to form when it comes to memory reconsolidation because it was developed with that in mind. That was the, the function that it was following. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at that point reconsolidation wasn't a thing in terms of the science of it but it was it maps to reconsolidate because it, it actually came out of studying the transformational moments that are driven by reconsolidation and, and was reverse engineered to follow those steps 
And I, I just love that beautiful marrying of someone staying true to phenomenological work. And it's then that the hard science comes in and actually kind of gives you a mechanism for it. It's such a crowded field in ways, the field of psychotherapy. There's so many different therapies out there. Um, and coherence therapy isn't something I think I'd, I'd heard of prior to speaking to Bruce Hirsch, Hershey mm. about IFS informed EMDR and he kind of mm. mentioned that it might be worth looking into. So, you know, how, how is it, because it's a relatively new type of therapy, it's been around for less than 20 years. Mm. Um, is that right? Because it was kind of like the, the 2000s when Bruce Ecker made that discovery yeah. and started to develop it. Yeah, I mean, Depth of Brief Therapy, the book came out in 1996. And I mean, that, that's amazing to read that far back. The reconsolidation stuff didn't really come into the early 2000s. And then depth of brief therapy became coherence therapy in the name change was in 2007, just to emphasize the central principle. Uh, so yeah, so it, it's been around in its deep structural forms since certainly 1996. Mm. And do you find many people seeking it out? How do people tend to come across it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the Institute, the Coherent Psychology Institute's been going for a number of decades now. And there's a regular flow through of people who come into training in coherence, uh, coherence therapy. And I think because of its marrying, its close mapping to therapeutic reconsolidation, the book Unlocking the Emotional Brain, which is a deeply integrative uh, kind of book, which is looking to show how reconsolidation can really integrate the field, which has been incredibly disparate. You know, that's brought a lot of interest in both memory consolidation and coherence therapy. So, I, I yeah, it, it just kind of moves along and, and there's a regular group of people training at any given moment in coherence therapy as a specific modality. But now that feels really housed in the meta framework of, of, of reconsolidation. Um, considering it sounds so good, you know, in a silver bullet in, in some ways, what, what might be some of the criticisms of it? Yeah, I, I mean, when I've kind of presented on it, one of the the criticisms that that has come in is, is, is a kind of framing of it as some kind of, of protocol-driven process and, and of a kind of, in the reconsolidation lens, as reconsolidation is, is it some kind of neural reductionism, you know, that this is kind of, yeah, somehow objectifying or instrumentalizing people and we're just trying to carry out a protocol on them. And that's the biggest criticism I've heard. But I can only say this as honestly as I can. I, I think that's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of both reconsolidation and coherence therapy. Because actually, as I said earlier, it's utterly phenomenological. You know, it's, it's, you're working in the person's experience. You're trying not to interpret or overlay anything whatsoever. You're really working in the dark, guided by the principle of symptom coherence to help the client come into contact to reassociate to their own material that's initially unconscious. So, so in a certain frame, I think of it as it's, it's kind of like hyper person centered. It's so person centered, it takes the person beyond what's initially their own kind of conscious experience of self to find other parts to integrate and reassociate to split off dissociated parts of self. So it's completely the opposite of, of anything reductionistic. It's an it's experientially driven. Reconsolidation is an experientially driven process. And if the client doesn't have the experiences, you can have all the protocols in the world. They're not going to actually have a reconsolidation or transformational process. 
And, and that's where the client's skill set comes in. We use everything, countertransference, embodiment, you know, you're holding the theory gently and constantly working to try to help the client bump into their own emotional truths. So it's very much tailored and individualized for it, that person. Because as you say, it's ex experiential. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do like the, those types of therapies that depathologize symptoms rather than someone being, you've got OCD or you've got health anxiety. Yeah. It's, it's kind of putting those aside and think, well, what, what are you experiencing? Let's kind of make sense of that. And that's yeah. as, as true, true as it can be. Yeah, I love that. It's as true as it can be. And that's part of the process. The person's coming in a deeper and deeper connection with their own self in the sense of they're reassociating to parts of self that were fragmented or split off. So it's profoundly integrative. And, and, and yeah, that, that carries on throughout the process. What kind of changes might someone notice in the present when they work through some of these parts, when they work through those younger parts that have maybe held on to that scheme or that view of the world. Yeah. I mean, and again, this is a mapping between the therapeutic reconsolidation process and coherence therapy. The final stage is what we call verification. And that's really checking, is this part truly now depotentiated? It's what's called functionally erased, functional erasure. And we can check that by actually trying to reactivate the part. So in the example of Jill, and I, I kind of had contact with her six months after we finished the work, you know, actually, it just felt, this is quite customary, it, it just felt kind of silly to her, or, or, or she couldn't map it experientially anymore, the fear of, of moving out from mom. And actually, mom had had quite a bad illness, which you, you would have thought may have reactivated the, the part to kind of, I've got to get back to mom, because I mean, she was totally fine in the end. But that's what we look for, what we call verification. You know, can we actually re-cue the, what we call the, the position in coherence therapy or the sub of the, and, and actually ultimately you can't, it really, it kind of ceases to exist in that sense. You can't reactivate it. And what's really important, the explicit autobiographical memories remain entirely intact of the events that may have formed the, the, the semantic kind of knowledge that is the part, you know, but the actual part itself is, is, is depotentiated. You can't trigger it. So the, the memories remain, but that part, it's it no longer triggered like by, well, by triggers. It'd be like, mm. if I don't have a fear of dogs, well, I'm not going to be afraid when there's a dog next to me. It's just there's nothing there for it to latch onto. Yeah, 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 exactly. It really, so I had, I had a, this is a few months ago now, a good example of it was a part a client had around looking after her sister who had a suicidal kind of a younger sister. And once she'd made that explicit, the sister was in her 50s and we'd gone through the, the process of reconsolidation. I mean, that didn't stand up to much kind of conscious light at all because the person, once they were sort of conscious of that part, it just came into spontaneous juxtaposition, we call that. Contradictory experiences with lots of other adult knowings because the sister was now 50 and 50 plus. And, and that's then literally within a few minutes, it's just like this strange experience at times of like, I, I just can't, it felt so active, actually my having to caretake my potentially suicidal sister. And now it's like, well, she's a 50 year old woman. I, she didn't actually have much contact with her anymore. It's like this weird experience, which is beautiful to see where it's really kind of, poof, it's kind of gone in that sense. And that's a real marker of reconsolidation. It's not incremental over time. It takes a long time sometimes to set up the conditions, 
But when the, the actual juxtaposition, the mismatch experience really takes, it's like sometimes minutes later, it's like, hang on, that seems really, it's weird I actually had that experience and thought I really needed to look after my sister. She's 50 now, what am I thinking? It's, there's real markers of that. I think that can come up in IFS and EMDR as well, where people say, gosh, that was weird, and it can have such a high ceiling. And at times, not all the time, but at times it can be so rapid in its transformation. That is what we, all we have time for today, though, Paul, but uh, thank you for your time today. I think you did a great job of explaining coherence therapy. I certainly have a much greater understanding of it now, and, and memory reconsolidation, which is so useful to be aware of the power that that can have. Uh, thinking mm. about how anyone could integrate it into their practice or even for those out there who might think okay yeah these memories that I have that are maybe bugging me or that might be contributing to how I feel now maybe there's something I can do about them mm. yeah no great if people take that away from the, the discussion the dialogue that'll be lovely and, and thanks for hosting this it's been a real pleasure and if anyone wants any further information or anything about this they can contact me and yeah I'll be glad to, to kind of signpost people whether it's towards coherence therapy or further reading on reconsolidation or where the, the, the two converge. Great. Thanks very much, Bob. Thanks, Jim.